Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to take it now and turn with me to the book of Ruth in the fourth chapter. And we'll be in this, in, in this chapter in both of the services today. Uh, but we'll begin this morning with Ruth chapter 4 and verses 1 through 12. And as you're able, please stand with me for the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Then went Boaz up to the gate, and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants, and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee. And I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing, for to confirm all things. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz said unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and all that was Malan's out of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of Malan, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which did too build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrata, and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this woman. May God bless again today the reading and the hearing of his holy word. And let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, give us understanding of your word today as we turn now to hear it preached. Lord, help me in the preaching of it. Have your spirit descend upon us. Give us understanding. Motivate us. Stir our affections. Help us to see the loveliness of Christ even as we come to this passage today. These things we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are 
nearing the end of this drama of redemption that we find in the book of Ruth. And we suffer a little bit from these paratextual elements of chapter divisions and and verse numbers that we find in our modern printing of the Bible. But that doesn't change the story that we have. In fact, almost it helps in this case because now we're moving into the fourth and final act. This takes place that same morning that Boaz sent Ruth away with six measures of barley. And if you recall, those six measures of barley, that wasn't some happy coincidence that was mentioned, but it was signifying that the time of Jubilee, the time of redemption was coming and drawing near. And Naomi took that message. She understood exactly what Boaz meant when he sent Ruth away with those six measures. And he, Naomi rather, turned to Ruth and said, Wait and see what is done. He will see it done today. Well, this is that same morning. Morning. Boaz had just sent Ruth away to Naomi, and now he has gotten himself up, and he is headed for the gates of the city. This is the climax of our story. This is the moment of redemption. Everything has been leading up to this moment, and we're about to find out what happens. Our passage today can be divided into three parts. The first, uh, in verses 1 through uh, 5, is Boaz's offer. This is his offer of the land of Naomi and Elimelech to this nearer kinsman. Our second point today is this old custom that is observed. This transfer of that land, or the transfer of the right uh, from this nearer kinsman to Boaz. And then finally we see the action of Boaz after he has acquired the property. We turn now to consider this offer of Boaz. He's sat there. He knew exactly where to go to find this nearer kinsman. And this is the problem that has been thrown into the mix here. Boaz was eager and willing to fulfill the rights of the kinsman redeemer. He had promised Ruth that he would do so and that he would see it done, that she and Naomi would be redeemed. But there was a nearer kinsman than Boaz. He didn't have the legal right to actually see that it was done himself, and so he had to appeal to another. And so Boaz gets himself up from the threshing floor and goes to the gate of the city. Now he knew that this was going to be the obvious place to find this man. Perhaps this near kinsman had a field and, and he might have been out threshing the barley at the end of the harvest just like Boaz had been doing. And so perhaps he's sitting there waiting for him to come in from the fields. Or perhaps maybe he's, he's trading for goods and so he's trying to get that barley and he's trading for something in exchange. So he's coming from the city to meet those farmers in the gate. This, the gate of the city, is where the transactions took place. Financial transactions, legal transactions, and so we have a mix of that here in our passage today. So Boaz goes to the gates of the city, and he waits. And you have this tension. It's almost like a lion is sitting there, waiting its price, stalking it out, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. And behold, The kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. This was the time. This was the opportunity. And so Boaz sees this man, this nearer kinsman, and calls out to him, Hey, you, come here for a second. I've got something I want to tell you about. 
So he turns this man aside to him and he sets him down. And he's got him. He's captive now. He's not going anywhere. And immediately, Boaz gets up and he goes and finds ten elders of the city. And he brings them and sets them down with this nearer kinsman. Now, is there any significance to these ten elders? Interestingly enough, there's not a conclusive answer. It could be that these ten are a literal number. It's literally ten men of the elders of the city. It serves as a quorum to hear out this legal proceeding that's about to take place. But it could be that this ten is is figurative. That this is a a perfect completion and hearing of this case, of this transfer of right of the kinsman redeemer from this nearer kinsman to Boaz. And while I wish I could say that uh, one is definitive, I think both are very, very probable and, and we can be benefited by taking that middle ground and saying this is both ten literal men hearing out this case of Boaz and this spiritual significance of the complete and honest transfer of this right to Boaz. You have to keep in mind, Boaz is a righteous man. He will not go outside of the law to see that this redemption is accomplished, but will accomplish this redemption in and through the law. And so he goes and he's had it all set up. Everything's ready. He's got this near kinsman. He's got the elders of the city to hear the case. There are passers-by that are perhaps stopping to hear what's going to happen. This is a to-do that is occurring right here as he's gathered these people together. And so he gives the setup. He said unto the near kinsman that Naomi, that's come out of the land of Moab, is about to sell this parcel of land that belongs to Elimelech. Now this is crucial the land was the inheritance of the tribes of the, uh, of, the, of the children of Israel, the sons of Israel. And so that, that land inheritance needed to stay within that greater tribe. There's also this familial aspect of, of that inheritance. It was crucial for, for Israel to keep its sons, its family lines, going. Well, if you recall from the book of Ruth... The family line of Elimelech had two sons, Malon and Kilian. Unfortunately, they, along with Elimelech, died in the land of Moab. There's really no hope because Naomi is an elderly woman. And Malon and Kilian did did not have any children with their Moabite wives in Moab. The one uh, daughter-in-law of Naomi turned back and went to her people. But Ruth stayed with Naomi and came back to Israel. A childless foreign widow in this land with an elderly widow and no true hope of any sort of son, any sort of marriage, any sort of prosperity in Israel. This is significant. The family line of Elimelech, that inheritance of Elimelech, must be maintained. And so, in the Old Testament... There was a law, a custom established to make sure that that this would be accomplished, that this transfer of inheritance or the the, the keeping of the inheritance would stay in the clan. If you turn to Deuteronomy 25, you can read of this this event. It's the the act of leveret marriage. Turn there with me. And it reads, beginning in verse 5, If brethren dwell together and one of them die and have no child, 
The wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she beareth shall succeed in the name of his brother which is dead, that his name be not put out of Israel. And if the man like not to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate unto the elders and say, My husband's brother refuseth to raise up unto his brother a name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak unto him. And if he stand to it and say, I like not to take her, then shall his brother's wife come unto him in the presence of the elders and loose his shoe from off his foot and spit in his face and shall answer and say, So shall it be done unto that man that will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him that hath his shoe loosed. This was the provision that God made to make sure those land inheritance stayed with the family. And this is exactly what Boaz is alluding to. Now, the exact law, the absolute letter of the law, is not really what's in view here. This was not Elimelech's uh, brother. It was probably a cousin, this nearer kinsman, just like Boaz is probably a cousin of Elimelech as well. So this, the exact details, that letter of the law is not being followed, but the spirit of the law is. It needs to be observed. This land right needs to stay. Naomi, of course, has that property right. Women in the Old Testament did have rights to property. You read about in, in Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophian. He had five, this man had five daughters and, and no living sons. And so uh, th- those daughters kept that land inheritance. But when it was time for them to marry, they were to marry within their own clan, within their own tribe, to keep that inheritance with them. And so Naomi currently has this right, but, but she is an elderly woman. There's nobody to pass this to. And so this is where this, this concept, the spirit of levirate marriage comes in. That land needs to be transferred to somebody else in this tribe. Somebody else that would carry on the name of Elimelech and his sons, Malon and Kilian. And so this is what Boaz offers to this near kinsman. Now it may seem odd to us that all of a sudden out of nowhere, this, uh, this, this sale comes up. It's not mentioned in the book of Ruth up to this point. But that doesn't mean that Boaz is just making some story up. This is a legitimate thing. It's keeping with that custom. And this is the custom that Boaz is appealing to in order to gain that right to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So Boaz turns to this near kinsman. And our our king's English here says, And I thought to advertise thee. And really the the underlying Hebrew is, uh, Boaz turns to this man and says, "I, I want to open your ear. I want to give you an opportunity to hear out this incredible deal. We have to keep in mind, this is a a bountiful harvest after a period of famine. All this man has to do is buy this land and he can start farming it. The land's fertile again. There's very little risk in this investment. He can buy this land, he can farm it. It's a great deal. And so... He hears out Boaz. And he says, I'll redeem it. You're right. That's a great deal, Boaz. Let me, let me get in on that action. But there's fine print. 
And so Boaz, immediately, that, that kinsman or redeemer says, I will redeem it. And Boaz says, wait just a second there. Because in that day that you go to redeem that, you also need to take for yourself the wife of the deceased Malon, Ruth, the Moabitess, and take her to be your wife. And take her to raise up an offspring for that family of Elimelech to keep that inheritance in that family. Now, this is altogether different. All that appeal of that deal where it was an easy decision now gets very complicated. We don't know much about this near kinsman. Perhaps he had sons of his own and didn't want to split the inheritance. Or who knows what else. We can only speculate because Scripture is silent. But this is really the challenge. This near kinsman is called to count the cost of his obligation. But we see here a challenge even to ourselves. What is our motivation for action? Is it to do the right thing? To help other people? Or is it self-preserving? Is it for our own good? Is it perhaps even born out of our own greed? Our own covetousness? That's the challenge. And so this nearer kinsman, he looks at this and he has to stop and consider. Is this really something that I can afford to do? What will this ultimately cost me? And this is something that we have to decide every single day, moment by moment of every day. We're constantly making decisions. How are we making those decisions? Are we making them out of self-interest? Are we seeking the good of others? And that's just our personal interaction. That's on, on our, our same level. The reality is, is that we have an even greater thing that we need to consider. Each and every single one of us has an obligation to God. We are uniquely made in His image. And as our Creator, we are obligated to Him to show Him the honor and the respect that He deserves and to be obedient to all that He commands. And there's a great cost of disobedience. Suffering in hell for eternity. But people don't like to think about that. That's a hard thing to consider because they don't really like to acknowledge God in the first place. They see that their own, uh, their own efforts, their own work has gotten what they have. And so they brush it off as a light thing. Dear friend, if that's you here today, count the cost Consider the weight. Are you really willing to gamble and, and try to preserve yourself? But Christian, that's also something we need to consider. We have been bought by that precious blood of Jesus. A price has been paid for our lives. We are not our own, but belong body and soul to Christ for all eternity. And so when we go into the world and we interact with other people... How are we doing that? What is our deciding factor in the actions that we take? Are we seeking our own personal good? Or are we seeking what God has called us to do? To love Him and to love our neighbors? And that is the, the question we need to ask ourselves when we come to points of decision. When we come to hard things to decide, like this near kinsman is dealing with and seeking to redeem this land. But this is the major point. 
The offer has been given. And so now we are in a state of suspense. We're waiting with bated breath to see what happens next. And this is our second portion today. This old custom observed. You can imagine there in the gates that this crowd has, has gathered because they're interested. They're interested to see what's happened in this land transfer, what's happened in this rite of redemption. And so you can almost hear the crowd hushing itself, waiting to see how this nearer kinsman would respond. Perhaps only a moment or maybe after some time, he finally chimes in and says, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar my own inheritance. That's his answer, friends. He's decided. He's looked at the cost and says, I cannot afford to put myself out there. It would be too costly for my own self-preservation to go and do what I ought to do as a kinsman redeemer, as a near kinsman to Elimelech. This man is seeking his own self-preservation. He's seeking to maintain all that he has and perhaps even grow it. But we have to acknowledge here that of all the main characters in the story of Ruth, this near kinsman, this climactic point, the one on whom all of this hinges is not named. Every act of his own self-preservation, every act of self-interest that he took has completely defeated his goal. We often think that the pen is mightier than the sword. We don't really give the right and proper understanding of how much we're influenced by what has been printed, what we read. The slander that somebody could write. The truth that could be uncovered that could undermine somebody. The pen is indeed mightier than the sword. But how much more does that stand for the inscripturated word of God? Every single jot and tittle secured by God. And here among those little jots and tittles, the little nothings of scripture, we have this nameless man who sought to preserve his own life who sought to preserve his own glory, who sought to preserve his own place among Judah. And he's forgotten. This is another challenge for us. How are we to think about this even in our own lives? The Lord Jesus Christ said, whoever shall lose his life for my sake shall save it. But he that seeks to preserve his own life shall lose it. We see that principle played out here in the book of Ruth. This self-preserving act cost this man everything. And we'll see that that selfless act of Boaz has lifted him up and exalted him, not just among Judah, not just among Israel, but through all the world, through the preaching of the word. Dear friend, are you seeking to preserve your own life today? Are you seeking to establish your own glory, your own righteousness. Look to this passage and think about this. Understand the futileness of your action. There is only one way to be preserved, 
And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. By turning from your sin. By turning away from everything in yourself. And putting your trust in Him. Resting in Him. And His finished work. That is the only means of preservation. That's one of the underlying principles, themes that's running through this entire book of Ruth. This act of redemption. What we find here in verse 7, a break in the narration. And so we're seeing this custom played out. The man has said, this near kinsman has said, I cannot redeem it. I will not redeem it. Boaz, it's yours. Now we get to the legal proceeding. This is where all the paperwork is is being signed in a sense. And so it's the official show that this, this property, this right has been transferred over to Boaz. Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. And so right away, we're clued in by our our author, our narrator here, that this is an old custom. This is something that's not practiced anymore, or at least not to the same degree. And so we're assuming that this book was probably written during the, the reign of King David, and perhaps maybe even into the early reign of King Solomon. Some commentators would put it at a much later date, but realistically, even the earliest date shows a great Divide a great shift in how Israel conducted its business as a nation. This was this old custom that was observed. And so the narrator is cluing us in that something important is happening here. And we need to pause to understand what's really occurring. A man would pluck off his shoe and give it to his neighbor. And this was a testimony in Israel. Shoes in the Middle East are an interesting thing. I remember when uh, 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 Saddam Hussein was, was taken out uh, of his power. And so the people in the Middle East would take off their shoes and throw it at pictures of him. And so that was a sign of, of trampling, of, of a, a, a transfer of power. That now that Saddam Hussein was out of office, he was below their feet. And so we see this even in this this symbolic transfer of power, this symbolic transfer of possession that's occurring here. This near kinsman draws off his shoe and he hands it to this near kinsman. This is his his power, his authority, his right to possession. And so he's taking it off and he's willingly handing it over to Boaz. If we think back to what we read in Deuteronomy 25... There's much more to that ceremony of, a, of, of true levirate marriage if you're following it according to the law, the letter of the law. But that shoe is still there. It is a, a symbolic transfer. And that man that drew off his shoe would be known in Israel as the man who drew off his shoe. This is an abdication of his, his duty, his obligation, his moral responsibility to his own family members. This is what this man is doing. He's abdicating his right, his obligation to help his own family. He's handing it over to the one that's willing to do it. This is the transfer of power that is occurring here. This is this old custom that's being observed. And so with this this transfer, this handing off of the shoe, that's a testimony, it's a sign, it's a witness. So that man and Boaz and those ten elders and all the passers-by that stood there and watched this occur, they knew what had happened. 
It was a sign that this had been done. That that right is now Boaz's. That it belongs to Boaz. This is effectively Boaz purchasing that property. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And just like that, this man who sought to preserve his own life, to preserve his own standing, simply hands off his shoe and hands off any remote possibility of being recognized among his peers. That act of self-preservation cost him greatly. That is the old custom. But we come now to our third point. The actions of Boaz. Boaz has set this all up. He immediately got up in the morning and he went right to that city gate with a righteous determination to see that promise that he made to Ruth fulfilled. He sought out that man. He found him. He didn't waste a second. He brought him over. He brought those elders together and he got right into it and said, I've got a deal for you. Hear me out. But this is what's going to happen. Will you do it? Yes or no? No, then I will. And so here is what comes in that aftermath of this transfer. Boaz said unto the elders and to all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Killian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Boaz is now the official owner. The legal proceeding has concluded. He's got the deed to the property. It's his. And so he's calling the crowd to be witness. You've seen here today this transaction. You are going to be called on to defend this if, if this is ever disputed. You know what has occurred here. But moreover, and this is really what Boaz was getting at, moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, hath I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. Boaz didn't care about the land. We see that in the fact that all of a sudden this, this notion of selling the land comes into effect. It's just simply a means to get to this end. Boaz saw something much greater than land. He saw the righteousness, the faith of Ruth. He cherished that. Ruth was a good, godly woman. She was deserving of redemption, not because of anything in herself, but because of her faith in, in God, in Jehovah. Boaz was a man of valor, a man of great moral character. And so he recognized that true value of character. And so he tells them, moreover, listen up, y'all. This is what's really occurring here. I have purchased Ruth to be my wife. I have purchased Ruth and I will fulfill the obligation to raise up another for the family of Elimelech. He's not hoping to gain any sort of personal, uh, personal glory from this redemption of Ruth and Naomi. He's not hoping for any gain in purchasing this land. He's not hoping that he would be recognized as some great man for this act that he undertakes. He's not even hoping for a, a child of his own. I mean, that's one of the great privileges of marriage. There's so many great things about it. But man, you get to have 
children. And you get to raise them up. And they're yours. That's an amazing thing. But here, Boaz is saying, I'm going to take Ruth to be my wife, to raise up a child in the name of Malon, in the name of Elimelech. And so realistically, it's, this isn't even going to be his own child should the Lord bless him. This is totally self-sacrificial. It's counterintuitive to everything that we would think somebody would act with. But here, Boaz sets for us the criteria of a kinsman redeemer. First, he must be a, a blood relative. We see that he's somehow connected to the family of Elimelech. He has to have the means. The kinsman redeemer must have the, the means to redeem someone. This isn't a free purchase. He actually has to, to pay something out to gain the right to this land. But third, and this is the differentiating factor between Boaz and this nearer kinsman, he must have a willingness to act. That nearer kinsman was unwilling to fulfill his obligation. He was unwilling to do what he was called to do. Yet Boaz was. That was his motivation all along. It wasn't the land. It wasn't glory. It wasn't, it wasn't children. It was a selfless act. And he was willing to fulfill it. But this clues us into something much greater than Boaz or Ruth or this near kinsman. This clues us into the true redemption. Redemption from sin. Indeed, we need a kinsman redeemer that must be a blood relative. Born in the flesh. We have that in the Lord Jesus Christ as we've celebrated in the Advent season, whether personally or, or whatever, the incarnation. That great mystery where God, the Son, eternally begotten, condescended, came down and put on human flesh as a baby and grew in stature and wisdom before men so he could be like us in every way, yet without sin. Our blood relative. He must have the means to redeem. God required perfect obedience. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ. Christ was perfect in his active and passive obedience. He had the means to redeem because he had that perfect life that no one could ever accomplish. But was he willing? That's the key. Adam had an opportunity to procure life, eternal life, for him and all his offspring in the garden. But he put it off. He looked at the fruit and decided that he would eat it rather than obey God. He wasn't willing to do what God had called him to do. Christ, on the other hand, was put in a desert, tempted by the devil, was put before the cross in the agony of the garden, sitting there thinking about what he was called to do to drink that cup of wrath that God had laid out for him. And yet... He was willing. He laid down his life. He gave it up willingly for his people. The willing kinsman redeemer. The perfect and true kinsman redeemer. 
Well, our crowd responds to all of this. They see the actions of Boaz and they, they note he's a man of character. They've seen even how this near kinsman acted. Out of nowhere in our story, this near kinsman comes in. It's almost as an afterthought. Where was he when Naomi and Ruth had come back from Moab? What was he doing in all that time? And so he, he seemed to be totally uninterested. Boaz acted with integrity. He acted with what we call hesed, a covenant faithfulness. If you recall, we had two key Hebrew words. The first being hesed, the other one being goel, meaning redeemer. And so this is what's really being shown here. That through this covenant faithfulness, redemption would occur. And so the crowd sees this. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. They answered that call of Boaz to be witnesses to the events that occurred. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah. And this is the first of a a, a multi-tiered blessing on this acquisition of Boaz. Notice here that it says, The Lord make the woman, the Lord make your wife like Rachel and Leah. We shouldn't overlook the significance there. Up to this point, Ruth was the Moabitess, the widow, the outsider, someone separated from the people of God. And now we come here and all the people acknowledge that this is Ruth, the wife of Boaz, the Israelite, part of the people of God. But not just that. They pray that Ruth would be made like, that, that, like Rachel and like Leah. And who are these two women? They're none other but the mothers of Israel. Between them and their, their handmaids, they were the ones who, who bore these twelve sons of Israel. This is terribly significant for us. These people have no idea what they're requesting, what they're praying for, what they're seeking in this blessing that, that Ruth be established in the nation of Israel. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll we'll come back to that. (laughs) But they're praying for this prominence, for physical fertility for Ruth, that she would be raised up in Israel and have an important place. Well, that's not all. They also pray that Boaz would be made known in Bethlehem, in Ephratah. Boaz, as we have said many, many times now, a man of character. Someone to be emulated. He sought to further the name of Elimelech and not himself. And so here we have this, this great irony that giving of himself to, to be no account in his own right, he's now being exalted among his people, among the Ephrathites of Bethlehem. I, I so dearly want to skip ahead, but... <laughs> But that's not all. These people, these witnesses, they also say, let thy house be like the house of Perez. This one's a little bit more challenging. Because Perez was the son of a terrible, terrible arrangement. Genesis chapter 38 records for us the events that occurred when Joseph was off in Egypt in prison. God was working to preserve Joseph and preserve Israel. 
but most importantly, preserve this seed of Judah. So Judah had these sons. The first two died, and their wife was Tamar. They were uh, accustomed to the act of leverant marriage. And so uh, Judah acted wickedly, and he, he didn't, uh, didn't give his last son over to Tamar. He thought that Tamar was cursed. And so Tamar disguised herself and tricked Judah into, into uh, uh, coming with her and conceiving two sons, Perez and Zerah. And so this is kind of a weird thing when we stop and we're reading through this and we think about the context there of Genesis 38. But from this line of Perez, from these failed leveret marriages, here comes these people, these Ephrathites of Bethlehem. These people are directly tied to the house of Perez. They're tied to this concept of leveret marriage. And so here they see two righteous individuals, two godly individuals come together to fulfill this obligation. And so they're saying that even, even among all the bad things, may God prosper you. But now we can finally jump ahead to what we really want to get at. The links to the Messiah. I've got two passages for us today to think about this. There are many, many that we could turn to to consider how the book of Ruth and this act of redemption ties in. But our first passage, if you'd like to turn there, if you'd just like to to follow along as I read aloud, comes from Genesis 49. And it is uh, the, the blessing upon Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Binding his foal unto the vine, and his asses cold unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. This is messianic. It's a prophecy. That from Judah, a lawgiver would come. The scepter will not depart. And so there's this great promise that we have. But that brings us to our second passage. And so I think you'll see that this is uh, fully tied together. If you want to turn to Micah 5 and verse 2. Micah 5 and verse 2. Our second, uh, our second passage that links this all together. Where we read. But thou, Bethlehem. Ephrathah, though thou be little among thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting, from Bethlehem, an Ephrathite. And who do we have here in our story of Ruth, in our story of Boaz, but the Ephrathites of Bethlehem, this points to something greater, the true Redeemer. And so we have all of this, all of these types, all of these shadows here as we read through this book of Ruth, here as we see this drama of redemption played out, and it's all pointing to a greater reality, the Lord Christ Jesus, born in that little town of Bethlehem, inconsequential, and yet he's the God-man. He's the true kinsman Redeemer. Well, we conclude here with a few thoughts. First, 
righteousness prevails. Acts of self-preservation, acts of, of seeking to gain your own glory will fail you every time. There's never harm in doing the right thing. There's never harm in being obedient to God. Yes, you may challenge, be challenged physically. There might be physical harm in some cases. But what is that compared with the eternal weight of glory? Oh, dear Christian, consider that. Consider what you're called to. Consider that you have a place in the presence of God forever. And in the hardships of life, what are you going to do? Are you going to waffle and bow down to the temptations of the flesh? Or are you going to look to eternity? Oh, dear friend, dear Christian, beloved, look to your precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your true kinsman, Redeemer. What we find here today in this climactic conclusion to this drama of redemption, two are two Hebrew words. Hesed and Goel. Covenant faithfulness. It was God's covenant faithfulness that brought Ruth into the family of Naomi. It was God's covenant faithfulness that put Ruth in those fields of Boaz. It was God's covenant faithfulness, his said. And made Boaz an eligible and willing man to redeem them. It's God's covenant faithfulness that made Boaz the Goel. And all of this, it points to the greater covenant faithfulness of God and the greater Goel, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, We cannot say enough about that. Our third point to consider as we conclude here. God's covenant faithfulness is unshakable. This is the line of Judah. From whom the scepter shall not depart. Which should not lack a lawgiver. And yet, in this family of Elimelech, it's threatened. There's no heir there. The family has died off and they're left with just this widow. But... God's unshaking covenant faithfulness seeks to establish this family. Even in the grimmest of moments, God's ways will never be thwarted. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just this wonderful story, this wonderful historical account of how you worked in the lives of these people uh, so long ago, so far away from us even today, in such ways that, that seem strange and difficult to understand for us. But Lord, we thank you for the overarching message that there is a true kinsman redeemer the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those who do not yet know him, that, uh, that they would hear your word, that they would uh, come to you in faith and repentance, that you would uh, restore them, that you would redeem them through that precious blood of Christ. Lord, help us as believers to take what we have, have heard today, to consider, to count the cost, to think about what you have called us to, to be faithful, to reflect even your covenant faithfulness in our own lives, to live with integrity for your honor and glory. Lord, help us as we continue in worship today. Bless us this day. These things we ask in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.